This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Carlson, Carlson, världens bästa Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, hoj här kommer Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, ingen faktiskt, ingen annan Carlson vill jag så bra som mig. Carlson, Carlson, Carlson scores! Carlson, Carlson, världens bästa Carlson. Yes! Thank you everybody for tuning in to another episode of the Keeping Carlson Fantasy Hockey Podcast, the best fantasy hockey podcast in the world, hosted by two guys who own Eric Carlson in their keeper pools. I'm your host, Elon Dubrovsky. With me, as always, Brian Com. Hello, Elon. Hello, everybody. It's March Madness right now. In fantasy hockey, we've got everything you need to compete in your playoff matchups or prepare for next year. In the episode to come, stay tuned. Yes, thank you for tuning in. Hopefully you will stay tuned in. We've got so much to talk about this week. Before we get into it, let's mention that you need to be going to DauberHockey.com for all of your fantasy hockey needs. That's where Brian and I go when we're preparing for the podcast, when we're preparing for our own matchups, because it has everything. Dauber Hockey, it's got line combinations, starting goalies, all the articles, the player profiles. I probably use the player profiles the most. I also use the real-time in-game line combinations a lot, especially like the night before a podcast. I want to see who's been playing with who on Anaheim. And we're going to get into all of that, by the way. It's crazy over in Anaheim. But anyway, I'm only scratching the surface. So much content. So make sure you check out DauberHockey.com. We talk a lot about different ways to assess players on the show. And at Dauber Hockey, if you go to a player's profile, you see a bunch of those summarized very easily very quickly, you see their 5-on-5 shooting percentage, or as we refer to it, their on-ice shooting percentage. You see their shooting percentage right away with indicators of whether they're higher than normal or lower than normal. And then there's links to every piece of content that has been written about that player, including episodes of Keeping Carlson. Yes, it really is the ultimate fantasy hockey website. Very proud to be presented by them. Let's get into the show, Brian. Let's start with the first fantasy hockey headline of the week. And I think I'm getting deja vu right now, because if I recall correctly, we started last week talking about your top round player that you drafted that got injured, and it was big sad news. And guess what? It's happened again. Last week was Malkin. They're dropping like flies. This week, Tyler Sagan. It's announced he's going to be out for the rest of the regular season, out three to four weeks with a cut to his Achilles. Such a huge blow for fantasy owners. Someone in our patron-only Facebook group mentioned that he had both Malkin and Sagan. So unfair. Fantasy hockey can be such a cruel mistress. And of course, I guess there's people who are actual fans of real hockey and they're probably sad about the Dallas Stars. But hopefully Sagan will be back in time for the playoffs. 
So let's just focus on the fantasy impact here. This, of course, leaves open a gaping hole on the top line and the top power play for Dallas. And there's been a few players that you would think might take advantage, but the one who's really taking advantage has been Cody Eakin. He has eight points in his last six games, and since Sagan went down, he's been playing on the top line with Patrick Sharp and Jamie Benn. Yesterday, he scored a goal on that line. I think at this point, with this opportunity for Cody Eakin, would I be crazy to say that he might be the sleeper pickup in a deepish league for your fantasy hockey playoffs? Sort of. I mean, a lot of the production that he's recently had predates Tyler Sagan's injury, which is promising in one sense but also not so much in another because, well, what he was doing before was just in his usual situations with the usual line mates, and it's common for him to essentially have like a 35-40 point pace when he's playing with those guys. So this little last run was an aberration. The fact that he has been on the top line and producing, that is good news for Cody Eakin, and that does make him a very interesting ad, except for the fact that we often see this spot cycled a whole lot. We've seen Cody Eakin up there. I feel like I just have this list written on the palm of my hand already. Colton Sevier, Patrick Eves, Brett Ritchie has recently been one of the newer names in the mix this season. Valerie Nichushkin, who knows who could end up on that top line, but for as long as he's there, as we always say, Cody Eakin is definitely worth a pickup. Yeah, and then I guess if you want to go the other way, if you want to look at the power play, it's actually Patrick Eves who took Sagan's spot, at least in Dallas's last game. It was Ben Eves. Sharp and Jason Spezza on the top power play with Klingberg on the back end, who, by the way, returned from injury. So happy times for John Klingberg owners. So maybe Patrick Eves or Cody Eakin. Those are the two guys that are probably available in your league that you might want to look at if you want to identify someone who might benefit from this Sagan injury. Overall, you would think this would be bad for guys like Jamie Benn and Jason Spezza, you know, the stars who have been doing well all season and now lose one of their star line mates or for Spezza, you know, their star person on the power play with them. But if I recall last year, didn't Jamie Benn do really well when Tyler Sagan was injured? And I think Jason Spezza as well. I don't think there's a whole lot to read into it there. I don't think that Jamie Benn is a better player without Tyler Sagan. That's just how it worked out for the, say, 250 minutes that he played away from Sagan all of last year. To be honest, they haven't spent a lot of time apart since Sagan arrived, and you have to go back to 2012-13 to see Jamie Benn playing with anybody else on a regular basis. And back then, his most regular linemate was Yarmir Yager. Hey... Yeah, I guess I'm not trying to say that, like, Ben is now better. Like, anyways, it doesn't matter because Ben isn't available to pick up. I'm just trying to make the Ben owners feel better that at least last year he didn't take a hit with Tyler Sagan out. And, of course, neither did Jason Spezza, but Spezza was up playing with Ben. Doesn't look like that's happening right now, but he's on an amazing hot streak. Yeah, well, Ben is a defending Art Ross winner. I don't think we have to be too concerned about him. If one player goes missing, even if it's Sagan, I feel like he should be able to still handle his own business. Back when he was playing with Yager, his numbers were not nearly as good as they are now, but of course he's a different player, he's changed, he's gotten better. I feel the same way about Spezza, that I'm neither really excited for him because of the Sagan injury or worried about him because of this injury. This season, he's actually on pace for pretty much exactly the same number of points he's had in each of the last two seasons, but I feel like it's the first time that anyone's really taking notice, and it just goes to show how underappreciated Jason Spezza is. And I'm touching wood while I say this, but Spezza himself has only missed seven games in his last three seasons, 
And I remember the caveat this season and last season for me whenever I recommended Spezza was, well, watch out for his health. He's had a bad back. But maybe that was just a result of him carrying the Ottawa Senators on it for so many years. And now some of that pressure has been alleviated. Spezza is now on pace for one of his highest volume shooting seasons in his career. So great season for Jason Spezza. Whether or not he moves on to that top line in the absence of Sagan, I think he's going to be just fine. The one player that I would be worried most about is Patrick Sharp. Oh, I was going to go the other way, Brian. What were you going to say? Well, he's been back from injury for two games now. In his first game back, before Sagan was injured, he found himself on a line with Colton Sevier and Vernon Fiddler, so it didn't look like Sharp was returning to a good situation. But now with Sagan injured, they shuffled things up. And like I said, last game he was playing with Jamie Benn and Cody Eakin. And of course, just playing with Jamie Benn, you'd think, should be enough for Patrick Sharp to be able to produce. He got an assist yesterday. I don't know. Doesn't seem like bad news. I guess if he would have ended up with Ben and Sagan, obviously this is worse. But at least for now, he's on the top line, which is nice. Yeah, and he could very well stay up there with Ben and whoever the other guy is right now, Cody Eakin, and do all right for himself. It's just not as good a situation. We've talked in detail this year about how he really seems to need Ben and Sagan to produce. Now that he has only Ben, I'm sure he'll still be okay because Ben is still going to score goals and set them up, and Sharp will be able to get himself to be a part of that. But the line could produce fewer goals on the whole, and that would, of course, hurt Sharp's production. But we'll see. Maybe he steps it up. Yeah, at this point in the fantasy season, like you're in the playoffs, if Sharp goes cold, if he goes off the top line, you could consider dropping him at this point. But while he's on the top line, I'd hold on. By the way, just for completeness, we were talking about Jason Spezza. He last game was playing with Valerie Nachushkin and Brett Ritchie. Both of them haven't done anything, but maybe that's a good opportunity for them. Who knows? Right now, obviously, the guys you want on Dallas are the guys like Ben, Spezza, then maybe Sharp, maybe Eves, maybe Eakin. I'd want all those guys over like the Nachushkins and the Brett Ritchies. Then, of course, there's Klingberg and the other defensemen. Obviously, with Klingberg back, by the way, he stepped right onto the top power play, and it looks like Chris Russell was bumped to the second power play, which means that Alex Goligoski didn't play on the power play very much at all. So maybe Chris Russell's still worth holding on to. Like we said last week, he was a must-add while Klingberg was out. Now, obviously, he's not that must-add anymore. If you're in a league that counts blocks, Chris Russell has value, and he's still going to get some power play time, it looks like. But, of course, he's not in that plum position he was in last week. So that's, I think, the top headline... There's some other injuries I want to talk about, but let's jump around a little bit. Let's go to outjuries now, because there's some big names coming back. And I think the biggest story right now might be Brian Elliott returning to action for the St. Louis Blues, because he's returning at a perfect time, because Jake Allen has been so bad lately. Jake Allen's last week was just brutal. He's led in five, four, and four goals in his last three games. The St. Louis Blues needed some respite. They needed another goalie to come in. Brian Elliott comes back from injury gets a shutout against Vancouver, just like that. And that makes things very interesting for the remainder of the regular season. And of course, our fantasy hockey playoffs. What do people do, Brian, if they have Allen or if Elliot's a free agent? We've been saying all season long that Jake Allen is the guy in St. Louis after he earned the job from Elliot at the start of the year. They started as maybe being 50-50 guys. Jake Allen very quickly asserted himself as the number one goalie. And then it seemed like even if he had a bad game, Elliot wasn't going to be taking over. Allen was their guy. Now, though, we're near the playoffs. St. Louis needs to figure out, do they go with the goalie they've been riding all season, or do they go with the one who's really hot? Like, Elliot was doing so well before he got injured, because if you remember, 
Elliot was playing while Allen was injured and was lights out. Then as soon as Allen came back, that's when Elliot got injured. Now they're finally both healthy. I feel like with this shutout against Vancouver, won't St. Louis ride Elliot until he falters? To say Brian Elliott has played really well or pretty well this season is a huge understatement. Brian Elliott leads the league this year in even strength save percentage. In the 35 games he's seen, he has a 942 even strength save percentage, which is ahead of James Reimer, ahead of Henrik Lundqvist, ahead of Thomas Grice. You're hearing a lot of backup names in this list. Connor Hellebuck is the next one. Of course, a smaller sample is going to skew things a little bit, but the point is that he's ahead of the starters and ahead of the backups who have been doing the same thing in a small sample size. Jake Allen is somewhere around 25th in the league. Meanwhile, surrounded by the likes of Craig Anderson, Jimmy Howard, Martin Jones, Chad Johnson. So those aren't exactly the sort of names that inspire confidence in goaltending. And that's the goaltending that Jake Allen has given for the greater part of the season, despite having gone on a very good run to begin the year that earned him, eventually, the number one job in St. Louis. Yeah, well, I'd be curious to know where Allen would have slotted just last week, because it's just these last three starts that have been so brutal. 895, 765, and 808 save percentages. Before that, he was on a nice run of getting over 929 for five games in a row. So I'll bet you at the end of that streak, he was a bit higher at least. But these last three games have just been so brutal. Such bad timing. Like, just Do you have any sense of what the St. Louis management will do? I would be lying if I said I did. I've never known what St. Louis management would do. In fact, just a few weeks ago, did we not quote Marty Turco from like 2002 talking (laughs) about Ken Hitchcock playing mind games with his goalies? Right now, Brian Elliott is the St. Louis Blues' best goalie by several different measures. So if they want to give themselves the best chance to win every night, then they're going to go with Brian Elliott. If they want to try and get Jake Allen rolling so they have two goalies that they feel like they can rely on, maybe they keep throwing him in the net until something good happens because we've seen that he can hold himself up fairly well in the NHL. He just hasn't been able to do it recently. Is that a matter of just playing a few more games or is he kind of finished for the year? I don't know. That's for the Blues management to decide. They have a tough situation on their hand because even though Brian Elliott has been such a good goalie, he's not necessarily the guy I'd want my team to be riding going into the postseason. Okay, but at the end of the day, we have to give some advice to our listeners here if they have Jake Allen. I'd imagine now's the time to be nervous because he's not guaranteed to be getting all of these starts over the next couple of weeks. If you can get Brian Elliott as a handcuff... I think that would be a smart move for you to make. Of course, maybe you'd have to drop a goalie. We'll talk about some other goalies this week that maybe we might consider dropping. Yeah, I think the unfortunate reality for any owner of either Brian Elliott or Jake Allen is that you need to spend two roster spots on a goalie. At least you need to try and get that handcuff if you can. If I could only hold one, I'd have to go with a hot hand right now. And Brian Elliott, there's only two, maybe three weeks left in your fancy playoff seasons. You don't have time to see if Jake Allen can work things out. And you don't have time to wait and see if the Blues keep going back to him or if they want to keep showing Brian Elliott that he is their guy going into the postseason. Brian Elliott would be the choice that I make. But it's not a choice that I'd feel very good about making. It's a really tenuous situation. And I really sympathize with all owners of St. Louis Blues goalies in this situation. Yeah, I mean, I don't sympathize with the people who have Brian Elliott and weren't expecting much from him and all of a sudden he's getting them shutouts. You guys are fine. The Allen owners, those are the ones I really sympathize with. And I guess since we're talking about goalies, let me go back to injuries. Here's a goalie injury that you'd think nobody cares about, but it was announced that Curtis McElhenney on Columbus is going to be shut down for the rest of the season. I know you're saying, who cares the backup on Columbus? But it's interesting because this opens up a spot for Eunice Corposalo to get back up with the big club, and we all know how well Corposalo did in Sergei Bobrovsky's absence, but Bobrovsky's back, 
But Bobrovsky hasn't been very good. He's played four games so far since returning from injury, and his save percentages have been 903, 892, 864, and 900. He got the win yesterday against New Jersey, but led in three goals in the process. And this brings his season save percentage to only 908. And compare that to Yunus Corposalo, he has a 918 save percentage for this season playing for Columbus. I'm guessing is going to play today because it's the second half of a back-to-back against New Jersey. Moving forward, though, should the owners of Sergei Bobrovsky start getting nervous, just like we said the owners of Jake Allen should be? It's rare that a goalie's backup getting injured makes that number one goalie's job a little less stable. But the call-up of Jonas Corposalo, or Yari's boy as we like to call him, him, has put Bobrovsky's number one status or entrenched number one status in kind of jeopardy. And we'll get to what it really means at the end. But I think with McElhaney backing up, there was no doubt about whether who was going to start each game. Even if Bobrovsky faltered, McElhaney was not showing himself to be capable of doing any better than Bobrovsky would have in a given game. Corpusalo, on the other hand, well, that's different. We've talked about this before, how they've played a similar amount of games, but Corpusalo has been the better goalie within that sample of about 30 games each. If we're looking again at even strength save percentage, we see Corpusalo up near the top of the league, comparable to goalies like Marc-Andre Fleury and Peter Mrazek. Sergei Bobrovsky, on the other hand, is way down there, comparable to Kem Ward, Jacob Markstrom, Andre Pavlik, not the guys you want to be compared to. And then you can also look at this goalie metric called Mercad, which is in longer form known as adjusted goals saved above average per 60 minutes. So it's a goalie metric that pretty much attempts to control for every known circumstance that will increase or decrease the likelihood of a goalie giving up a goal, pretty much should they have given up a goal in that situation on that shot or not. And then it comparatively ranks each goalie based on how many goals they've saved compared to a goaltender who saves no more or no fewer goals than what would have been expected by the sum of all of these controls. And we actually retweeted a chart the other day showing the latest rankings in Mercad. And on those rankings, you can see Corpusalo shows up with the higher cluster of goalies in the league who have faced 600 or more even strength shots this season. He's in the top 10 again, comparable to Mrazek and Crawford in this measure in saving his team just over a quarter of a goal per 60 minutes played. Which doesn't sound like a lot, but again, it puts him up there in the top chunk of the chart. Bobrovsky, on the other hand, ranks third last in the league in this measure. He is somewhere lost in the abyss between Kerry Lettinen and Eddie Lack, allowing four-tenths of a goal more per 60 minutes than would be expected of, say, a perfectly quote-unquote normal NHL goalie. So all this to say, Cole's notes at the end, Corpusalo has been better. The question, however, is do the Blue Jackets care? which goalie is better. And I'm thinking maybe not. You know, they're going into the end of the season. Losing games is okay because it helps their standings in the lottery. It's funny to consider that starting Bobrovsky might give them a better chance of losing games, but essentially they don't care if he's got to work out his game and lose Columbus the next five while he does it. And you also wonder if this is a time where they do show their allegiance to Bobrovsky. What would it do to their relationship with Bobrovsky, to his confidence in himself, if Corpusalo comes up and starts more games while Bobrovsky hasn't had a chance to find his footing? I feel like all these sort of off-ice personal feelings factors point to the Blue Jackets preferring to start Bob even though they still have Corpusalo as a better goalie riding their bench every game. 
Is Corpus Allo better in the long run than Bobrovsky? I doubt it. And so put all that together, and I don't think Bobrovsky owners have a ton to be worried about, unless John Tortorella just decides to be a real jerk, ruffle some feathers, and get Corpus Allo in there because he wants to. Great analysis, Brian. We learned a new stat. Mercad. There you go. But I do think Bobrovsky owners do have something to worry about, right? I mean, even if he does play, doesn't mean he's going to do well. Clearly, he hasn't been doing well so far. We had a question recently. I think it was on Facebook or Twitter asking someone has Bobrovsky and was wondering if he should pick up Brian Elliott. I had a real tough time answering that. Even if Bobrovsky gets more games, I feel like Elliott playing half the games of Bobrovsky might win an equal number and might even have a better save percentage if the numbers from this season bear out for the rest of the way, then Elliott would have a much better save percentage than Bobrovsky. I don't know. I would be worried as a Bobrovsky owner, I have to tell you, even if I wasn't worried about Corpusalo stealing starts. But I am also, because Corpusalo is at least going to get the back-to-backs, and I would think that he should earn himself at least a couple more. Real quick, Brian, what do you say to the people who are deciding between Bobrovsky and Brian Elliott? For games played, go Bobrovsky. For save percentage and goals against, go Elliott. Okay, but what about for wins? I'm still going to go Elliott there. Even if he starts, I mean, what? Both teams have about 10 games remaining to play this year. So even if Elliott starts 5 or 6 and Bobrovsky starts 10, I think Elliott has a pretty good chance of matching Bobrovsky in win counts unless Bobrovsky really finds himself and starts stealing games for the Blue Jackets, which is a pretty tall task. All right, so you don't need to hedge. Sounds like you're saying you would take Elliott. If you think he's going to be better in wins and save percentage, that's pretty good. I don't think anyone is just banking on games played metrics. I don't know, in the playoffs, some people choose to throw away save percentage or whatever because, you know, they get down early on in the matchup. And so it's just about racking up as many saves and win opportunities as possible. I would take Elliot. Okay, let's move on. One more piece of goalie injury news. Robin Leonard is out right now with an ankle injury that he's day-to-day for now. But Brian, you shared a tweet with me that maybe he could be out long-term. We don't know yet. We just talked last week about how Chad Johnson was on the doorstep potentially stealing starts from Leonard already. Now if Leonard's out, Chad Johnson does become the starter. And he's been pretty good for the last little while. Like we said last week, he had a not-so-great start yesterday against Toronto. But before that, he had three solid starts in a row. Also, as we're going to get to, Ryan O'Reilly is back for Buffalo, which I think does increase their chances at getting wins. So assuming that Robin Leonard ends up being injured for the next couple of weeks, where would you throw Chad Johnson into this list? He'd be at the bottom because I don't think he has as much potential for either wins or starts as the other two guys. Johnson has been doing pretty well this season, but it's been an up and down ride. Remember earlier in the year, it was him and Allmark battling it out for starts. And now Allmark's in the AHL. They called up Nathan Lewin instead of Allmark, which tells me that it might not be a very long-term thing for Laner, or at least they don't know that it will be yet. And Johnson had a couple good starts in relief for Leonard, as we talked about last week, but he didn't hold up too well on the second half of a back-to-back last night, giving up four goals to the Toronto Maple Leafs. He's a 916 career guy, nothing great, nothing terrible. He might blow up your save percentage every now and then, but hopefully if you have him on your team, he's going to be reasonably steady. I wouldn't expect a ton of wins. I wouldn't expect him to rescue you in your save percentage category. He's not very good, but he'll do the job if you're in a pinch for a goalie, as long as Laner is out, which we don't even know how long that's going to be yet. Yeah, so just someone to have on your radar. I'll also mention that Corey Crawford is day-to-day, but I think he's going to be coming back soon. That's the word. Scott Darling had a shutout against Winnipeg on Friday playing instead of Crawford. So if it turns out that Crawford's out longer, if that news comes out, you definitely want to grab Darling. Maybe you've already grabbed Darling as insurance. But there you go. That's all the goalies I think we're going to talk about this week. Before we get back to some of the other skaters injured and outjured and the ones on hot streaks... 
Let's take a second to talk about our sponsor, SeatGeek. If you've ever been frustrated trying to buy tickets to sporting events or concerts or anything like that online, then SeatGeek might be the site for you. Most sites make it complicated and then try to sneak in huge fees at checkout. And that's why you need to try SeatGeek. They've made it easier than ever to buy and sell sports and concert tickets. They're always honest and upfront about the price. And unlike StubHub, SeatGeek shows you the full ticket price from start to finish and never surprises you with huge fees at checkout. Anytime I'm thinking of going to a game down the stretch, it's hard to want to go watch my Ottawa Senators, but hey, the Capitals and Ducks are coming to town, so maybe I'll check them out. I fire up the SeatGeek app, and right away, I can see the straight-up total end-of-transaction price for each ticket, and also a rating of how good value that ticket is for me. And I'm just browsing through the prices daily because I know I don't have to click 10 times to find out the real price. It's just right there for me to see. Do you really browse through ticket prices daily? I really do. I really want to see the Sens once more this season. I'm looking for a really good ticket price because I don't feel like they're a very good team. So finding a really good deal would make me feel better about the whole thing. Well, hey, here's a deal for you and all of our listeners. You could get a $20 rebate off your first SeatGeek purchase if you enter the promo code KEEPING at checkout. That's KEEPING as in KEEPING CARLSON. Hopefully you make it to a Sens game, Brian. And all of you out there, hopefully you can make it to a game before the end of the regular season. So go ahead, download the SeatGeek app, enter the promo code KEEPING. Bob's your uncle. Go see a game. Okay, Brian, like I said, still so much to talk about. I mentioned Ryan O'Reilly when we were talking about Chad Johnson on the Sabres. O'Reilly, back for the Sabres. Great timing for the fantasy hockey playoffs. He's played three games so far, has two assists, one on the power play. He played over 21 minutes yesterday for the Sabres. And I remember the coach said when he was coming back, he was going to ease him into the lineup. He's been playing 19, 20 minutes. O'Reilly is a stud. He makes the people on his line better. It makes me more excited about having Sam Reinhart on my team. Jack Eichel was the one who I guess got hurt by this because he moved to the second line, but then Evander Kane went with him. Eichel was injured last game, so maybe we'll have to see a couple of more games to see how the lines really shake out. Another guy on Buffalo that I think is worth talking about at this point is Zach Bogosian. Bogosian, believe it or not, he has 11 points in his last 15 games. He's been putting up crazy shot numbers also. He's had four, three, eight shots against Montreal three games ago. It's been really crazy. Rasmus Ristolainen is the defenseman on Buffalo who you want, or that's what we've been saying all season. And Ristolainen's been okay, but he's actually been slumping a bit. He went on a long, pointless drought. He has, though, two assists in his last three games, so I think he's bouncing back. He also takes a lot of shots, just like Zach Bogosian. It's rare to be able to find a defenseman that can also help you in the shots on goals categories. Ristolainen's probably not available in your league, but Bogosian might just be, though his percentage ownership has been going up a lot. The one downside to Bogosian is Buffalo only plays two times next week. So if you take him now, you're not going to get so much immediate value, but they play four times the week after that. Brian, what do you think? Should people be looking at Zach Bogosian at this point, or do you think that this production is fleeting? Yeah, Bogosian's offense has really been impressive from the blue line in Buffalo. Like you said, Elon, he's ahead of Ristolainen. He's the highest scoring defenseman on the team in their last three weeks. So say about 11 games. He's got six points in those 11. Tied for fourth in overall team scoring with Marcus Foligno and Brian Gionta. So a few Sabres really coming up in the last few weeks out of nowhere to make a fantasy impact at a crucial time in the season. Can Bogosian keep doing this? Well, what catches my eye is... 10 games ago, he had 71 shots in 46 games played. Now he has 111 shots in 56 games played. So this is a guy who is averaging not even two shots a game, but over his last 10 games, he's averaging four shots on goal per game, which is a really handy thing to be doing. For even more context, it took him 25 games to register his previous 40 shots on goal. 
So yeah, like what he's doing, he tended to be a guy over the course of the season who would get a shot here and there, sometimes have a three-shot game, sometimes have a five-shot game, but a lot of the time he'd go with zeros or ones in the shots on goal column. As long as he keeps putting up high numbers in the shots on goal column, that's going to help you and help him put up some points down the stretch. So yeah, definitely a guy to look at. Maybe if you can wait until like next Saturday to pick him up, that's when he'll start a really nice run of a lot of games. Of course, he might be taken by then. Bogosian will also help you in penalty minutes. If you're in a league that counts that, he had 14 penalty minutes against Montreal the last game, and he's been getting two or four pretty consistently over the past couple of weeks. So he's helping you there. Blocks and hits, not so much. But hey, if he's getting points and shots, that should definitely be enough. If you want blocks, here's an outjury that I could mention for you. Calvin DeHaan, he missed four games with a lower body injury. Now he's been back for four games, and he has 17 blocks in that span. And this is a guy that was probably dropped in your league when he was injured because, you know, it's Calvin DeHaan. It's not the kind of guy you keep when he's day-to-day. But if you're in one of these leagues where blocks are valuable, take a look at DeHaan. He's been one of the best blockers over the past little while. No points, of course, in the four games since he's been back. Only five shots on goal in that span. But so many blocks. Also, I forgot to mention when speaking about Bogosian, he was even playing a little bit on the top power play along with Ristolainen in the Sabres last game. So that's another thing that would be great for Bogosian if that could keep up. Dahan makes a pretty good ad if you're looking for blocks. Right now, he ranks eighth in the league in blocks, even though he's played like 10 games fewer than several other players in the league. The other upshot to his blocks is, well, there's no offense really to go along with it. But he doesn't have the low plus minus that you do see amongst a lot of players in that top range of blockers in the league this year. He's actually a plus three on the season. And if you think about it, a guy who blocks a lot of shots is usually seeing a lot of pucks come his way, which means that there's a good chance that goals are being given up while he's on the ice. Dahan has been able to stave off the minuses enough to stay in positive territory, which makes him a guy who can help you in one category And one category isn't a ton, but at least he's not going to hurt you anywhere else. Of course, just to say he's not a guarantee to not hurt your plus minus. He's actually minus four in his four games since returning from injury. Islanders have been a little cold lately. I have a feeling that won't keep up. Let's move to another team in the Metro Division. The Philadelphia Flyers got Jacob Voracek back in their last game. He had been out for a few weeks, and the Flyers were actually doing really well without him. It's not like they needed to have Voracek back. They've been one of the hottest teams in the league. And I guess that was indicated by the fact that when he did come back yesterday, he was slotted on the third line with Matt Reed and Nick Cousins. They didn't want to disrupt what was happening with their great first line of Giroux, Simmons, and Shen, or their great second line of Sam Gagne, Sean Couturier, and Michael Roffel. And these guys have been under the radar really great. Raffle has eight points in his last seven games. Couturier, six assists in his last seven games. I guess the one big impact of Voracek coming back is that he did bump Mark Streit off the top power play. Streit had been doing really well in that role since Voracek got injured. And I guess before that, Giroux was injured. So he's had a nice run being the second defenseman on that power play. Now they're back to going four forwards. Giroux, Voracek, Shen, Simmons, and then Gustav Beher as the defenseman. So I think this is... Maybe time to drop Mark straight. Philly has a really good schedule, though, over the next two weeks. Four games in each of the next two weeks. So now's the time to stock up on Philadelphia players. So, Brian, do you think there's any value in keeping Mark straight? And if not, how about these guys like Couturier and Raffle who are really heating up? Oh, right. And also, is Voracek going to be able to do something even if he's playing on the third line? Well, let's start off with Strait, who had reclaimed some of his fantasy value briefly, stepping onto that top power play unit while Voracek was out. Unfortunately, those days are over. Like you said, Elon, he's off that top unit, which means that his fantasy value is back down to near zero. If you had him for a week or two and he helped you in the playoffs, it's time to thank him, shake hands, and say goodbye. He is a minus three in his last two games with only two shots on goal. 
He did block three shots a couple games ago. No blocks in the last game against Pittsburgh, even though Pittsburgh just put a ton of rubber on net in that game. They were shooting around Mark Strait. You could say they were straight shooters. <laughs> okay. How about those other guys? Roffel and Couturier have both shown us that they can score for somewhat extended periods of time. Couturier had a great run earlier this year. We were getting really excited about him playing with Braden Shen. Then he got injured, and then he was quiet for a long time after that. And Roffel, of course, pulling a Braden Shen in that he's finally getting some production in there, and it's not coming on the top line where he's had to rely on it in the past. Mind you, even with this little run of eight points in seven games, Roffel only has 26 points on the season. So he had 18 points in 63 games played previous to this run, and all of the Flyers have been on fire. Everything has been going so well for them. I don't expect things to continue so well for Michael Roffel specifically. Sean Couturier, to a lesser extent, could keep it up. But I think it'll be interesting to see what the lines look like for the next game because they were rolling with these because they were doing so well. But against Pittsburgh, they delivered a real stinker of a game. Probably their worst game in about three or four weeks. They looked uninspired. They weren't taking shots. Everything just seemed like a total mess. And I wonder if that provides the opportunity for the shakeup necessary to get Jacob Voracek back into that top six and push a guy like Michael Roffel or Sam Gagne out of it. And finally, Elon, you asked about Voracek's value. Well, that's part of my answer on it is I don't think he's far from an opportunity to get into a really good position to score again, but he already is in one anyway on that top power play unit. We know he's amazing at collecting points on that top power play. It's been his bread and butter for a couple years in Philly now, and I'm not concerned at all about what happens at even strength. Remember at the start of the season when Philly was all having a hard time, Giroux and Voracek were ice cold, and Voracek was playing on the fourth line for a bit. It didn't last very long. Voracek is going to be fine. Any of his owners do not need to be worried about what he's going to bring them, especially with so many games coming in the final weeks of the season. Yeah, and okay, I'll throw out one more guy that you might want to add on Philly. I think we talked about him a couple of weeks ago, but Radko Gudas, if you're in a league that counts those peripherals, that's a guy you need to add. He's been so good. He actually has two goals in his last two games. He scored a goal in each game to go along with like three blocks each game. Eight hits last game, three the game before. Like, Radko Gudas does everything. What a great guy to own in fantasy. And Gudas is not like a Calvin DeHaan. Like, he's on another level in terms of he can put up some offense sometimes. He has 118 shots in 64 games. That's almost two shots a game. He's had games of, like, five and seven shots in recent history. He actually had two goals and two assists against Columbus, which was just insane. And like I said, now he's on a two-game goal streak. I'm not saying you should count on Gudas for points, but you can't expect maybe one or two in these eight games that Philly's going to play over the next two weeks, I'd be very surprised if Gudas goes pointless, which I wouldn't be surprised about Calvin DeHaan doing. When a team is firing on all cylinders, all players seem to be able to get in on the action. The question is, can the Flyers keep firing that way the whole way through to the rest of the season? Because that's what Gudas is going to need to be able to get in on goals. If you look at his first 55 games of the season, he was averaging one point for every 11 games played. He had five points in 55 games. He has... Seven points in his last nine games. There's no question about who the real Radko Gudas is in terms of scoring. That's just gravy. You're not adding him if you're looking for goals or assists in your league. You're adding him if you're looking for hits, shots, and blocks. If he gives you anything more than that, you can be very, very grateful for it. Yeah, which his owners have been recently. One last piece of Philadelphia Flyers news that's just come out. Michael Neuwirth is apparently going to be out for the next three weeks, which is basically 
the rest of the regular season. So you Steve Mason owners, hang on. And if you're a Michael Neuwirth owner, obviously it's time to look elsewhere. He already seemed to have been usurped by Mason as the guy who's going to get a lot of starts, though with eight games the next two weeks, the backup for Philly might get in the net one or two times. Brian, who is that going to be now? It looks like it will be Anthony Sollers being called up from the Leahy Valley Phantoms. He's had a 916 save percentage in the AHL. None of this matters. Steve Mason is going to be starting every single game down the stretch. Steve Mason owners should feel very good about that. The only downside could be fatigue, but Steve Mason has handled heavy workloads in the past. I don't see why he wouldn't be able to handle one again. Okay, next out jury on the docket. Let's go over to Anaheim where Brandon Peary finally came back and played his first two games with the Ducks. No points. Five shots on goal, but he was placed on the top power play with Getzloff, Perry, Perron, and Cam Fowler. So maybe Brandon Peary has some potential to put up points. And that, of course, gets all of the lines shaken up again, as they always do in Anaheim. And interestingly, they've put Getzloff and Perry back together with Jamie McGinn. So there's a guy who might have some increase in value. Then you have Peary with Raquel and David Perron, which I think is actually maybe not great for David Perron because he was playing with Getzloff before. And then the one line that stays consistent is Ryan Kessler, Jacob Silverberg, and Andrew Cogliano. Lots of guys to dig into here. McGinn has goals in his last two games. And of course, playing with Perry and Getzoff, I don't suspect that to be a coincidence. Ricard Raquel actually has four points in his last four games, so he's hot as well. As is Jacob Silverberg. Lots of shots lately. He had three goals and assists versus New Jersey and then an assist on Friday. Silverberg was a guy who was really hot for a while and we talked about him. Then he cooled down. Maybe now he's heating up again and we'll keep going like that for the rest of the fantasy hockey season. The only guy who's not really doing well lately from this list is David Perron. Like I said, just one assist in his last five games. Brian, putting that all together, I'd be curious to know how you would rank. I know you're going to hate me, but I really want to know the rankings of who you would take first from McGinn, Perron, Peary, Raquel, and Silverberg. This is a really tough one, especially because by the time we release this, Elon, I imagine the Ducks will have shuffled their lines three or four more times, but we'll go with each player on their own right now. And Jacob Silverberg is the one that really stands out as a shot producer, as somebody who puts a lot of pucks on net, who while he's on the ice, sees a lot of pucks go towards the opponent's net. He has 13 shots in his last three games. In one of those games, he did score that hat trick against New Jersey. And this is not like a short-term aberration for him. Over the course of the season, he's averaging two and a half shots on goal per game and several more shot attempts per 60 minutes than most of the Anaheim Ducks. And then, of course, you have McGinn, who was a much sought-after trade deadline acquisition. A lot of teams had interest because he's known to be a physical player and he can score points from time to time. The interesting thing about him, though, is that his possession numbers are generally poor. So putting him together with Perry and Getzlaff will help those possession numbers up and in a positive possession situation. I'm very curious to see what Jamie McGinn can do when he's playing a little more offense than he's used to playing rather than being on the other side of the puck. As for Perron and Raquel, a lot of the talk has been about where they play in the lineup, and they've been very reliable when playing in good situations, which is why it'll be really interesting to see what they can do with each other and Brandon Peary. That line is just a line of question marks to me, because we know Silverberg, well, when Kessler gets going, Silverberg can do pretty well in terms of production, although he's been inconsistent over the course of the season. McGinn is a bit of a wild card on that top line, but he's playing on that top line, and a lot of people saw him as an upgrade to Patrick Maroon at the trade deadline. And if Patrick Maroon could produce from that first line, then why not Jamie McGinn? And then again, Piri Raquel Perron don't know 
who on that line is going to lead the way. Perron is the only one of that group, though, who is on the top power play unit, so that gives him an edge over the other two. If you're asking me to rank them all right now, I'm going to go Perron because of his power play status, and then McGinn because he's on the top line. And then if you want shots on goal, go Silverberg. If you don't care for that, I think I'd still lean towards Raquel. And then Piri would be at the bottom, just because we haven't seen enough of him to know what he can do in a Ducks uniform. Hmm, great analysis. You know, I think I might disagree with you, though, about David Perron. I know being on the top power play is good, but I think he really gets hurt from not playing with Ryan Getzloff. That's where he was heating up. And now that he's away from him, he's cold already. I think I'd be more excited to have someone like Jamie McGinn playing with Getzlaff and Perry over David Perron right now. I know a lot of people grab Perron because he was on such a hot streak for so long, it would be tough to drop him for a guy like Jamie McGinn. But I think I might consider that. And also, I think Ricard Raquel might be someone I'd rather have than Perron, just because he's been so consistent all season long. He has 40 points in 67 games, which is a lot more than we would have expected from him. It's really tough between those guys. I guess right now, I'm just going with the guy on the top line. Jamie McGinn is the one I'm most excited about. And then I guess Silverberg. Ah, they all are interesting. That's why I asked you. I'm interested to know what the listeners think about this. Tweet at us with your list of your ranking of McGinn, Perron, Piri, Raquel, and Silverberg. I agree with you. Put Piri at the bottom for now, even though he's on the top power play. Let's see him do something first before we put him above those other guys. I guess we should go back to talk about a couple more injuries. Here's actually an interesting one. Christopher Stieg was injured yesterday. And again, that might be the one where you'd say, oh, who really cares? He's not a big deal. But he was actually on a nice run on the top line for LA with Kopitar and Lucic. He had three points in his previous three games before yesterday. And it's worth mentioning that Kopitar and Lucic are on fire. Kopitar has... 13 points in his last 10 games, and Lucic has 10 in that span. So they are really clicking together, and that was what made it so great for Versteeg to be there. And it looks like in Versteeg's absence, at least for the last game, it was Tyler Toffoli who was moved up to the top line to play along with Kopitar and Lucic. And if this sticks, this would be great for Tyler Toffoli, who was cold for a while but has been doing better lately. But of course, going with two of the hottest players in the league in Kopitar and Lucic, that would be great. That would maybe be bad, though, for a guy like Jeff Carter, who would be left with worse line mates with Toffoli leaving. So I guess all this to say, wait on Versteeg. Like, don't pick him up, obviously, now that he's injured. If you have him, you could probably drop him safely. I'm sure you'll be able to add him back if he is healthy again. And Brian, maybe the guy I want to ask you about here is Milan Lucic. Like, how does he have 10 points in his last 10 games? Is it just because he's playing with Kopitar, or is Lucic a guy who you think could also keep it up for the rest of the season? There's no doubt in my mind that it's because he's playing with Kopitar. We've known him for years as somebody who Pulis like to grab really early on because he's a great multi-cat guy, but his value has always been a little bit inflated, so I feel like now people are seeing him do this and are like, well, he's a 60-point guy again, and his value is going to jump right back up, but I urge our listeners to resist the temptation on the season. He has 46 points in 70 games, and that is with help. That is with 10 points in his last nine games. I think Milan Lucic is more of a 50-point player, and that's the pace that you should continue to expect from him over the course of the rest of the season. A little higher if he plays with Kopitar, but even just playing with Kopitar shouldn't be automatically good for him to continue producing at this pace. One thing that is impressive about it all, though, that's worth pointing out while I'm taking away from what he's doing, is that only one of those 10 points has come with a man advantage. A lot of even strength production coming from him. And of course, all those even strength points would be playing with Kopitar. 
Kopitar, by the way, 65 points in 70 games now. Maybe he'll be able to get up to a point per game. He's just been so hot, and so it's definitely worth watching to see who's going to join him on that top line in Versteeg's absence moving forward, because as long as Kopitar is hot, anyone playing with him at even strength is probably going to get a couple more points than they would otherwise. Brian, let me just give you a lightning round of other injuries, because I want to get to some guys on hot streaks before we end the show. Matt Duchesne and Nathan McKinnon both have knee injuries on Colorado. They're still day-to-day for now. We don't know what's going to happen. So I don't want to make any, like, long-term recommendations. I think, though, a guy like Jerome McGinla is going to have an increased role. He has a three-game point streak going, has been getting more minutes in these last three games with these guys injured. And, of course, Gabriel Landeskog being suspended. Landeskog is going to be back today, by the way. Hopefully he'll do well. Michael Bodker has four points in his last four. Carl Soderberg might get more time if these injuries persist. And he has four points in his last six. So he might be able to end the season on a high note after having gone so cold for the last little while. Those are some guys to watch on Colorado. Yeah, and if Elon went through that too quickly. Gabriel Landeskog is coming back. If he's still available in your league, pick him up now. He can help you the rest of the way. Yeah, unfortunately, Colorado only plays two times next week, but I think it's still worth it. You gotta grab Landeskog if you can. Then in Calgary, Dennis Weidman has been announced to be out for the season. Pretty rough year for him. He just came back from suspension. Now he's injured. Brian already said last week not to bother with Weidman, so hopefully you didn't pick him up when he came back from his suspension. And with Weidman out, we mentioned last week that TJ Brody was injured. TJ Brody returned after missing three games, and he had an assist in 29 minutes versus Colorado. So he steps up to having a big role on the team. But believe it or not, in that last game, it was Dougie Hamilton that had the most power play time. So it's still tough to decide between like Giordano, Brody, and Hamilton. Who's the one you want the most? I guess it's probably Giordano. Between Brody and Hamilton, it's interesting. I'd lean Hamilton. We actually talked on the patron cast, Elon, about how Dougie Hamilton, in his last 45 games or so, he is playing above a 50-point pace and is not getting the respect he deserves for doing it. Now he's getting a ton of power play time, which is even better because of all those points that he's putting up to get to that 50 point plus pace, only four of them came with the man advantage. So extra power play time is only going to do more for him. I think there's no doubt in my mind that it goes Giordano, Hamilton, Brody in Calgary right now. And Hamilton is really making a push to make people second guess at their drafts next year, which Calgary Flame defenseman they want to pick first. Yeah, especially in a keeper league, Giordano's getting a bit up there in age and Hamilton's still a young guy. He's going to be valuable in keeper leagues for years to come. The one other injury I wanted to mention, he's been out for a little while now, but we haven't brought it up on the show. Jason Pominville has been out. He's missed five games now. No return in sight. David Jones is the guy who took his spot playing on this like third line with Huala and Niederreiter, which you know you would think, who cares, the guy coming on the third line. But that was a hot line for a while, back when Pominville was doing well. Niederreiter actually has three goals and two assists in his last four games. One guy who's not stepping up on Minnesota, even though now with Pominville injured, you'd think he should have an increased opportunity. Thomas Vanek only has three points in his last nine, and he was a healthy scratch yesterday. So of course, there's always the chance that after a player gets healthy scratched, he comes back and like does really well because he wants to prove himself. But if he doesn't do well in his next game, I think Thomas Vanek is like a snoozer and you could drop him. Man, remember the days when Vanek was a sure shot, huge point producer. There was nothing that was going to stand in his way. That was way back when he was in Buffalo and then to some extent when he was in Montreal. Unfortunately for him, though, it hasn't carried over into Minnesota. But he's actually not that far removed from a recent streak where he had nine points in nine games. It's been a pretty uneven season for Vanek on the whole, both in terms of production and ice time, which has been slowly dwindling over the last month or so. He was playing 
16, 17 minutes a game fairly regularly, even touching 19 minutes a game. But over the last 10 games, it's gone to 12, 13, 12, 11, 13. So he's definitely on the outs in Minnesota right now. And Minnesota's feeling the heat. Their team that is looking for answers as they're getting caught in the wildcard chase by the Colorado Avalanche and not seeming to have any answers. Zach Parisi, another player who has gone very cold and who the team seems to be losing patience with. It's not really a happy time for any Minnesota Wild player right now, which is in stark contrast from the days not too long ago when we were saying, wow, look at Coyle, look at Granlin, look at Niederreiter. Everything is going right for the Wild. Right now, we are on the other side of the coin. Yeah, it's been a real pendulum in Minnesota. They go from being really valuable to pretty worthless. Right now, they're on that downswing. Granlund actually hasn't been doing that bad lately. But overall, not much to be excited about in Minnesota for fantasy. But Brian, that's a downer. Let's end the show with some hot streaks. Some players doing really well that you might want to grab off your free agent list. I have to bring up a guy that we mentioned last week, but I just want to know if you've changed your mind or not, because Devontae Smith-Pelly has six goals and three assists now in his eight games with New Jersey. He had two goals and assists versus Minnesota. Last week, he had already started this hot streak, and you said he had a low shooting percentage. It's not going to last. It's lasted one more week. Do you think it'll last another Or is it finally over? He didn't get any points yesterday against Columbus after, you know, that two goals and assist game against Minnesota that I just mentioned. He was on a four-game point streak. It ended yesterday. Is he now going to go on a four-game point drought? Or do you think that Smith-Pelly owners or potential Smith-Pelly owners can expect some more offense next week? Nothing in my mind has changed about Devontae Smith-Pelly. It's very exciting that he continues rolling. But six goals on 16 shots still stands out to me as a very unsustainable shooting success rate. He's shooting at 37.5%. His career rate is 9.9%. So eventually the pucks are going to stop going in for him. But we're at the point in the season where, hey, if things seem to be magically working out for a player and you want to take a chance on him, go for it. He also is bringing some fancy relevance back to his line mates, Adam Henrique and Tyler Kennedy. But keep in mind, if you take away that huge game that the Devils had against Minnesota a couple games ago, neither Henrique nor Kennedy have really been putting together any sustainable fantasy relevant production. So if you're going to go for a devil right now, go for Devontae smith Pally, but don't jump all over that whole line. Brian, you know, I think I might actually be the more conservative one here. I'm going to say I don't think that the production is going to keep up for Devontae smith Pally. I know that's not what you're saying, but you said maybe pick him up if you're going to take a devil. I would say just don't take a devil at all. And maybe look to Carolina, who has four games next week, and they have a line that's been on fire lately. Victor Rask, Jeff Skinner, and Phil DeGiuseppe... These guys have four, seven, and six points respectively in their last seven games. Jeff Skinner especially, that's seven points in seven games. And Giuseppe, who I remember one time you laughed at me when I said that maybe Skinner was slowing down because Giuseppe was injured. I knew that obviously he's not getting production for him, but I don't know. They're good together. They seem like a very good line, and Victor Rask is a great centerman for that line. Like I said, Carolina plays four times next week, and these guys are hot. If you could grab Jeff Skinner, I definitely would do that, and I would even probably prefer De Giuseppe over Devontae Smith-Pelly. Am I crazy? No, not at all. Don't misconstrue what I said about picking up a devil and that devil being Smith-Pelly. I don't recommend anybody does it. For anybody who believes in the magic of a hot streak or a hot hand, then, you know, you could convince yourself to do it. But I would much prefer someone like Philip DiGiuseppe because he's playing with somebody who's shown that he can put up points several times throughout the course of the year. I mean, not to say Henrique hasn't been able to be that guy either, but I do like Skinner a little bit better. Did Giuseppe, by the way, has three goals on his last eight shots on goal, so he's not going to keep scoring goals at the rate he is. However, if Jeff Skinner can keep taking shots and occasionally getting them past the goalie, then that'll be something that Giuseppe 
can benefit from. That's a really deep ad, though. If you add Philip DiGiuseppe in your league, I want to know. Send us a tweet. <laughs> okay, well, maybe another guy in Carolina you might be looking at, not as hot as the Skinner-Rask DiGiuseppe line, but Elias Lindholm has been taking a lot of shots lately, and I just have a feeling he could break out again in these last couple of weeks. And again, like I said, Carolina plays four times. Maybe take a look at Elias Lindholm. Some interesting options there on Carolina. Elias Lindholm, such a tease. He's been up and down so often this season, but often in a very good situation. He's been a constant sort of top of the line free agent fodder guy that I could always add if I'm looking for somebody with a good schedule in a given week. I feel like even though he doesn't always make good on it, there's always a chance that Elias Lindholm can do something. And then one more hot streak. I know I said I was done with goalies, but I think we have to mention Jonathan Bernier. He's had three amazing starts in a row now. Two of them wins. And this is on the Toronto Maple Leafs, a team that we didn't expect to win very much at all for the rest of the season. And Bernier has been so inconsistent overall on the year. But his last three starts have been a shutout against Detroit, one goal against against Tampa Bay, and then two goals against against Florida. But he had a 9.33 save percentage in that game. So Bernier has been doing really well. And we were talking before about goalies like Sergei Bobrovsky, who we can't rely on. Then you have a guy like Bernier who's actually doing well. I guess it just makes things more confusing. But Brian, do you think that Jonathan Bernier could keep this run going for the rest of the season? Like, I remember at one point we talked about Bernier as a really good goalie. He's really eroded all of our confidence in him this year. And Toronto doesn't seem like a good team. Like, I don't see how this is happening, but it is. Only three games, though. Small sample size. Do you think it can keep up? I don't really think it can keep up. But the interesting thing is that the Leafs are playing some kind of defensive hockey lately. In their last four games, only once have they given up more than one goal against, which, of course, bodes well for the Toronto goalies. And I don't know how much credit Jonathan Bernier deserves for that compared to the defensive play in front of him. Although maybe I should take that back. Maybe anytime a goalie makes 38 saves for a shutout, you've got to give him the credit. He stopped 26 shots the next game, 28 shots the next game. I don't think that he can keep doing this for sure the rest of the season. But if you need a spot start, he's a little less scary today than he was earlier in the season. But I emphasize a little less scary. I feel like Jonathan Bernier at least as a Toronto Maple Leaf, is never terribly far from a very bad blow-up. And he is on a very bad team. So they're icing so many minor league players every night that I feel like there is the possibility going into any game that the Maple Leafs goalie is just going to get lit up. Bernier has escaped that fate so far, but I wouldn't put money on him being able to continue doing so. Yeah, I think what you said pretty much nails it. He's a little less scary now, so you can feel a little more confident if you need that start that maybe he'll give you a good save percentage. But yeah, he can still blow it up on a nice run. I'll be curious to see how he ends the year. And then it'll be interesting to talk about his fantasy value going into next year's drafts because Toronto has these young players coming up. Maybe they'll be better and it seems like he'll be the starter. I don't think it's going to be Garrett Sparks, but we'll discuss in the summer. Since we're talking about Toronto, maybe on the other side, not a hot streak, but a cold streak. Remember when Leo Komarov was really good and everyone was talking about how he's the guy to add because he's getting points and so many hits? Well, those points have really dried up. Just one point in his last 12 games, and now he's day-to-day with a lower body injury. So if you're holding on to Komarov, hoping that maybe he'll come back and still be good, definitely drop him. Probably everyone already has. I don't even know. Maybe it wasn't even worth mentioning that. Another guy on a cold streak that it might be time to drop is Ryan Callahan. We were so excited about him when he was doing well on the top line on Tampa Bay. But right now he has no points in forever. Off the top line, not in the top six. And he's also actually day-to-day, just like Leo Komarov. So another guy that you should definitely be dropping at this point if you still have him. Worth noting that with Callahan's demotion from the top line, it was not a total deconstruction of who was playing there. Alex Kalorn survived the cut, even though... He went pointless in five straight on that top line. I guess they liked what he was doing in general. And he's been able to start producing recently. 
Three points in his last two games, still not doing a whole lot all around. But with Tampa only playing one game before Friday for next week, I'm not sure he's somebody that you need to have on your team right now. Maybe add him for the back-to-back. They have Friday and Saturday against the Islanders and Panthers. Yeah, then they play again on the following Monday. So if you really want to mind the schedule, there's your window to add Alex Killorn. By the way, the guy that took Callahan's spot on the top line was Nikita Kucherov. So it's Stamkos, Kucherov, and Killorn on line one. And then Johnson, Palat, and Jonathan Marcheseau got onto the second line, at least in the last game. So that might be a guy to watch. Nemesnikov is on the third line. Wouldn't be surprised if he could bump Marcia So at some point. Okay, how about now I mention some players on cold streaks that you might still have in your lineup, unlike Callahan and Komarov, who I'm guessing if you're a savvy enough fantasy hockey player that you're listening to this podcast, you've already dropped. We should mention the line on Nashville of Mike Ribeiro, Philip Forsberg, and Craig Smith has gone completely cold. They were so hot. They were like the hottest line in the league, getting so many points. We were like, grab these guys, ride it out. But if you've been riding it out and you've still been riding it out, now might be the time to consider cutting bait on these guys. They have one goal between them in the last five games. No other points, just a Philip Forsberg goal on the power play in the last game. Aside from that, at even strength, nothing at all. Yet when we were seeing four, five, seven shot games from Philip Forsberg, that's when good things were happening. Now we haven't seen him get more than three in his last five games, which is not a terrible thing. Like that is a decent thing for a top six forward to be doing but it doesn't add up to the same production that they were managing in that really hot run a little while back. And we've also mentioned that Ribeiro and Smith carry very little peripheral value, especially Ribeiro. So if you're carrying Ribeiro through all this, it's really time to cut bait unless or until that line gets hot again. Yeah, also speaking of shots on goal, Craig Smith during the hot run was getting three and four shots like every game. Now he's had just one shot in each of his last two games. Really a bummer. It would have been nice if those guys could have stayed hot for the rest of the season. Definitely don't drop Philip Forsberg, but Craig Smith and Mike Ribeiro should be at the bottom of your rosters at this point. You should be considering dropping them for one of the other hot players that we've mentioned. I guess one player I have to mention that's put a little bit of egg on my face, Nick Letty. Last week I said you have to add Nick Letty. He's on such a great streak. What did he do for me after I pumped him up? He went pointless in four games since that episode, which is a bummer. Brian, who got it wrong more? Me saying that Letty was a must-add or you saying you shouldn't add Devontae Smith-Pelly? I feel like I don't expect either of their fortunes or misfortunes to continue, so we were both wrong, but I hope we'll both be right in the very near future. There haven't been a lot of goals at all for the Islanders lately, which means fewer chances for Letty to get in on those goals. Hopefully when they remedy that situation, when the forwards remember how to put pucks past the goalie, Letty will be one of the beneficiaries. Yeah, okay, so I'm still going to hold on, at least for now. You still want Nick Letty. He's on a good team. I don't know why the Islanders have been a bit cold lately. One last random name I want to throw at you to end the show. Did you know that Jay Beagle is on the top line on the Washington Capitals right now? For a team that's had a pretty consistent top six for pretty much the whole season, the Capitals are picking an interesting time to start shaking things up. Of course, for the longest time, it was just Ovechkin, Backstrom, and Oshie on line one, and then Kuznetsov, Burakovsky, and Williams on line two. Right now, Throw that all out the window. We've got Ovechkin with Jay Beagle and Backstrom on line one, and then Oshie with Kuznetsov and Burakovsky on line two. The big loser here, I guess, is Justin Williams, who gets bumped to line three. But it's not a horrible line. Williams with Marcus Johansson and Jason Chimera, all guys who have put up production, at least in spurts in the past. There was a run where Chimera was doing pretty well this year, if you remember. 
Maybe they're just trying to balance out their top three lines. But in the meantime, so far, not much from Jay Beagle, but a guy to watch if he's playing on the top line with Ovechkin and Backstrom. I also was very concerned about Justin Williams when this change happened, but he's been doing okay for himself lately. Four points in his last five games. He has 18 shots in those five games too. So two goals, two assists away from the guy who normally makes everything happen for him, which is Evgeny Kuznetsov. And if you look at his new line mates, Marcus Johansson and Jason Chimera, they're not putting up a ton of points right now either. So Justin Williams is surviving for now on the third line, but I wonder if he can survive for very long. And I also wonder if Jay Beagle can survive very long on that top line. It's almost like the Capitals feel like, well, we've got Ovechkin, we've got Backstrom. We don't really need a third guy. Let's just plug anyone in here and save our best offensive guys to create a more well-rounded top nine. Ah, poor Jay Beagle. Hopefully he's not listening. But thanks to all the rest of you for listening. This has been a really fun show. Wait, I'm not done yet. I have one more guy, Elon, that I forgot to talk about last week. Oops, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, and I almost forgot again this week. But before we close out the show, the very last player I want to talk about is Antoine Vermette, who is paying dividends to anybody streaming him late in the season, such as myself. He has six points in his last four games, ten points in his last seven thanks to a huge four-point effort a couple weeks ago against Florida. But he's been reasonably consistent lately, and a lot of power play production too. Three power play points in his last four games. Actually, his last game, he went scoreless and shotless, so that wasn't great. But before that, he had a neat little three-game point streak going for him. The Coyotes play the Oilers first thing next week at home on Tuesday, so he might still be able to provide you with a little bit of a scoring punch there. You know, we've really been looking to Hansel to handle a lot of the power play production in Arizona. I owned him for a while. I swapped him out for Vermette, and Vermette has been very good. Edmonton, Dallas, Philly is the Arizona schedule next week. Neither of those are off days, though. Yeah, next week's schedule is actually pretty tough. Like, most of the games are happening on Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday. So if you have players that are only playing on those days, you might want to take a look at dropping one of them for one of the few teams that's playing on an off day since you might be having those guys on your bench all week. But if you have space for them, yeah, Vermette's been good. And of course, Tange still doing well since the last episode when we talked about him. He had two points last week in three games. Somehow Shane Doan is still keeping it up and getting points every once in a while. This Arizona team, very hard to pick. And like you said, the guy who I really like there, Martin Hansel, completely cold. He actually did have two assists in a row in two games, but since then again, going cold. So hard to predict moving forward, but it seems like Vermette is the guy you'd want, at least for the short term. Okay. Now we're done the show. Once again, thanks for listening. We hope you liked it. If you liked it, let us know. Tweet at us, at Keeping Carlson. We'd love to hear from you. And you can also ask us any of your fantasy hockey questions. You're in the playoffs. If you need, like, a quick decision, should I drop this guy for this guy? Tweet at us. We'll let you know what we think. If you want to do something small to help out the show, you could always give us a five-star review on iTunes. That's always very much appreciated and helps bring some visibility to our humble podcast. Also, it's still not too late to become a patron of Keeping Carlson. You could join the patron program for the next month, you know, to finish off the season. Join the patron group on Facebook. Join us for our next patron cast, which will be in a week. We had a really fun patron cast last week. We're doing it every two weeks for the next little while until the season is over. If that sounds interesting to you, check out keepingcarlson.com slash patron. If you want to buy tickets to something, download the SeatGeek app, offer code KEEPING, get $20 off. Brian, that's all I've got. So let's cue the outro music. And why don't you go ahead and read us the credits? All right, this episode of the Keeping Carlson Fantasy Hockey Podcast was presented by Dauber Hockey and supported by our patrons. It was researched with help from War on Ice, Hockey Analysis, Hockey Reference, Corsica.Hockey, 
a new up-and-coming resource that is the website if you want to check it out, Roto World, Yahoo Sports, and ESPN Fantasy Hockey. Great job, Brian, as always. To you too, Elon. And until next time, keep on keeping Carl Sons.